I'd invite you to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and if you're a visitor, there should be a pew Bible uh, in front of you. It's page 942, 942. And as you're turning there, I want to welcome our visitors. Um, there's some people here that I haven't met before, and it's good to have you. I hope you received a warm welcome from us who uh, call Quinesset home, and if we can do anything to help you. Uh, on your journey and things that you may be interested in spiritual, spiritually, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to help you. If you want to know more about who we are, uh, the website has a lot of information. Uh, give you our identity, uh, what we believe, and uh, what our church is uh, based upon. So, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that you have promised the author of your word, your spirit, to teach us, to convict us, to correct us, to encourage us, to apply his word, and so we look forward to you opening up your word to us individually, corporately, that we may, as the Greeks would say to Philip, that we would see Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you for the privilege of an open Bible in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, we entered uh, Romans chapter 6 last week. It's our Um, journey through this book. I think we've been at this now for maybe 34 weeks. Um, It's a, uh, it's the Mount Everest of Pauline theology, is that he writes this treatise. It's one of the most logic of his letters. He writes it to a mixed congregation of Jews as well as Gentiles. And he would um, underscore, he would expound on the great doctrine of the faith justification by faith. It was a battle cry of the Reformation, and we've gone through the first four chapters, first five chapters actually, uh, with that very theme, the doctrine of justification by faith. Paul has brought every human being uh, to their knees at God's justice, his justice, uh, his bar of justice, and found all all guilty. Now in Romans chapter 6, since he is applied, he's now applying the doctrine of justification. So we enter now into the practical application of the gospel, of the gospel. He has laid out um, what is the gospel, and now he's going to say, what does the gospel do? And the gospel, uh, as we saw last week, it's bookend in chapter 1 and chapter 16. We find that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation that produces a newness of life. And so as you come this morning, as I come this morning, we don't come to do a religious service. We don't come to just uh, listen to some instruction from the Bible. We come to encounter the Christ of the gospel who radically changes lives by what we know as the new birth. And Paul is going to unfold for us in Romans chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8 what the gospel does and how to live that, how to live that. Now just by way of review so that we'll have our bearings for this morning, is that he starts out in Romans 6 with a a very strong question that is an emphatic negation. 
He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means, or may it not be. So what he is, is he's destroying any thought that you can be a Christian and not pursue the Christian life, that you cannot claim to know Christ and, and yet live a life that is contrary to his commands. He's saying that is preposterous. How can you possibly say that you have grace, but yet you continue in patterns of life that are indicator of no grace? And then he would say something which is going to be our emphasis of this morning in verse 4. He says, we've been buried therefore with them by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so by his negation, by saying it's impossible uh, to be a, a, claim, a proclaimer of life in Christ, and live in sin because of two things. One, grace and habitual sinning is incompatible. You can't die to something and live to that something. And he's saying that you have died with Christ in sin, to sin, so that you would no longer live um, in the dominion of sin. Now, I want to make it, uh, make it clear just for your encouragement, is that Paul is not saying that Christians don't sin. Sadly, we do sin. Someday we won't. That day is not today. So we still sin. But the point he wants to make at is that, and John would make that in his first letter, is that Christians will not habitually live in practice of sin. He said, because you've died to this. And he'll go on later in 6, 7, and 8, and he will show us that sin, though present, and though a power still dogging the Christian, we will not live under the bondage or the dominion of sin like we did before. Outside of Christ and in Adam, which we all were, there's only two humanities. You're either in Adam, dead to sin, or you're in Christ, alive to Christ. In Adam, all we did was sin. Genesis 6, 5 defines for all of us that are not Christians. And the Lord looked upon man and he saw that the thoughts of his heart, his mind, were continually evil. And so that's what we are outside of Christ. We are alive only to sin and all we can do is sin. In Christ, though, that we have died to sin, as he would say in verses 1 through 3, so that we would walk in newness of life, in newness of life. Now, what I want us to look at today is this newness of life, this newness of life. Because Paul would use in verse 4, and that's our key verse for the day, he would use the word in with him. If you read the verse with me, we were buried therefore with him. He would use baptism as an intimate picture of our union in Christ. And Paul's theme throughout his writings of with him or in Christ Union with Christ is the key to understanding the Christian life. Is that you must know what happened to you when you became a Christian. You must understand this inseparable union of Christ and the believer. It is the closest relationship that is the closest that a human being will ever know. And so Paul would say that because of our union in Christ, dead to sin alive to Christ, we are one with him, and as a result of this new life in Christ, verse 4 becomes our marching orders. He says that we would walk in newness of life, in newness of life. Now, the, the word walk 
is a, is a common word used by the Apostle Paul. He would use it uh, in eight of his 13 letters, 25 times, and the word literally means daily life or daily conduct. Is that we all walk according to something. Is that we all walk according to what drives us, what motivates us. It's our natural bent in life. And he, he now says that because you're in Christ, because you've been born again, there is a newness in your life that you are to walk in this newness of life. And so when you look at the word newness, what comes to mind? Well, it actually defines as original, of a kind never seen before. It rightly defines what true Christians are. You walk in a manner that you never walked before. You walk in a manner that is contrary to what you were before. Not in perfection, but in sincerity. And that you continue to walk in this newness of life where it progressively becomes more and more who you are, dissing yourself from what you were. And this newness of life, because of union with Christ, it's not something that you generate. It's something that was given to you. Hence the, uh, the dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus in John chapter 3. And we're going to talk about that here briefly. So today I want us to look at this newness of life and define it for us as Christians. What are some of the characteristics or what would be the principles that would define this newness of life that we are to walk in? It's important that as Paul would write, he said, we too would walk in newness of life. He doesn't define that in this verse. But as you look at the whole of the scripture, you will find that it is, it is laid out on how the Christian is supposed to walk. Now, now what I, I don't want you to walk away think I'm telling you to go and do a bunch of stuff. I'm not exhorting you to go and try to be religious. And I'm not trying to get you to see that the Bible is teaching you in the strength of yourself to go and try to live a new life that uh, is impossible to do. Is that you can't live the new life unless you have new life. And so if you come here today and you don't know if you're a Christian or not, then you're going to have a hard time understanding these principles of the new life. Because you must have life in order to walk in newness of life. And so this life that, that starts us in this journey is what the Bible would call new birth. It would call this, this radical encounter with Jesus Christ that changes you. And it's not something that you do. It is a life that you receive. It is simply coming to him in your brokenness, in your emptiness, in, your, in, the, in the folly and the futility that you know this life is full of, and you come to him and you say, I need life. I don't know you. I don't know God. I have sinned. I have violated the law. I need new life. And so if that's you today, I can only urge you with the greatest of urgency is to run to Christ. Don't run to a, Remember his great invitation Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know what Jesus is saying? That is a verse, that's a salvenic verse. 
He's saying all of us that are, that are feeling the weight of our sin, feeling the weight of, of, of the futility of life, feeling our alienation from God, he says, come to me. He doesn't say, come to a church, though you're certainly invited here. He didn't say, just, he didn't say come to religion. And he didn't say, come to moral reformation. He didn't say, come to me once you fix yourself, which you can't. He said, come to me. And see, that's the radical nature of Christianity. That's the radical nature of what our church believes. The radical nature of Christianity is you're encountering a person. You're encountering a living person in Jesus Christ who walked through life, who lived a perfect life, who died on a cross as a substitute for sinners, who rose from the dead, who went to heaven, and who's coming back. And if you note that the three greatest events in human history all center on the person of Jesus Christ. The first greatest event in human history was Christ's birth. Imagine being the shepherds in that field. And the angels come and they explode on the scene. And, and the shepherds hear this great proclamation. Of, Behold, I bring you great good news. Tonight is born a Savior. And they run, they see, and they find that God has invaded the world, not as a moral example and not as a teacher, though he was both. He came as God in the flesh. And so the first, the first radical and, and, and significant event in human history is the invasion of God in our world in the birth of Christ. And the second greatest event in human history was not the crucifixion. It's not Good Friday. It's up from the grave he arose. It's the resurrection on Easter morn, on Resurrection Sunday. The second greatest event in human history is the fact that Jesus is alive. And if you're here to, whatever you're here today as a believer or a non-believer is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has impact in your life. Because he rose from the dead, it means that there is hope beyond the grave, but it also means that there is judgment. Is that he is going to judge every single human being. And the third greatest event in human history is also centered on Jesus Christ. The first two have already happened. The third has not. And that's his return. Is he's going to explode in the clouds. And, and the Bible says that every eye will see him. And so this is what Paul is telling us. Paul is telling us this newness of life isn't you adopting religion. It's you living out this Christian life of Christ in you, the hope of glory that has radically changed you to where these five principles are part of who you are. And they begin to serve as the compass guiding your life in all things. I've used the word radical uh, numerous times because that's exactly what the Christian life is. It's radical. I mean, imagine what we are as Christians. We tell a world out there that has no regard for the Lord Jesus and really no regard for the church. And part of the irrelevancy in the culture of the church is our fault. It's our fault. It's because we're not salt and light permeating the world with the gospel. You remember the early church turned the world upside down. God can do that again through the revived church. 
But the point I want to get at is that when, when the world out there, they don't understand, and we tell them a message that makes no sense whatsoever. And Paul would tell the Corinthians that very thing is folly to the world. Go and tell someone that God came as a man, in a, as a baby, and that he died on a cross for you and for me, and that he rose from the dead and he's coming back, and people are going to look at you like you have two heads. They're not going to hear that. They're not going to want to listen to that. And the reason why that most of the time the gospel is rejected, it's not because of intellectual hang-ups. It's because of moral hang-ups. Because if you admit that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, you're accountable to him. And that's a moral issue. Well, Paul is going to tell us that as Christians, we walk in a newness of life. We walk in a way that is so radical to what the world would say, and it's so radical to organize religion. And so what I want us to do this morning is to take verse 4, walk in newness of life, and identify five principles that mark the new life, that are found within the Scripture, that would define for us what Paul is referring to, that we would walk in these things. Now, we're going to identify these. But I don't want you as a young Christian... And you're not seeing these just blossom off of the the trees of your life in fullness. I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to be encouraged that they're in your life. I want you to be encouraged that these principles are implanted in you. How be it small? Remember, a mustard seed is not very big. But it grows. Well, here's the first one. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Here's the first principle of the new life that the Christian has by virtue of union with Jesus Christ. And you may be sitting here thinking, well, this sounds like something I've never heard before. And perhaps you haven't. But all I'm doing is telling you the true essence of Christianity is an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. And I cannot make you believe, but I can tell you to run to him who will grant you belief. And so as you look at these things, make sure that, the, that you have what's necessary for these things, and that is new life in Christ. And it's not hard to get this new life. Jesus said, as many as received him, as many as believed upon him, as many who clung to him, as many as relied upon him in who he said he was, to them he gave the power or the right to be children of God. Even a child can become a Christian. It's not a difficult thing. But let's take a look at this. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Here's the first principle of the new life that is those who are in Christ Jesus by which we are to walk. And the first one is the foundation. The foundation of the Christian life is God's law. It's God's word. Jeremiah would write, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of these 
to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The foundation of new life in Christ that begins the walk of new life is God's law, God's word written upon the hearts of the believer. He says, God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. But I've already said this in advance, is that in order to have it written upon your heart, you have to have a heart transplant. You have to have a new heart. God doesn't write His law on the old heart. He writes it on the new heart that He creates. Ezekiel 36, 26-7 says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This carries over into the New Testament. You don't need to turn to it. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And you may be saying there, well, how do I know this is happening to me? When you first became a Christian, tell me how excited you were to read the Bible. When you first became a Christian and, and God opened your eyes and you started seeing this book for what it was, tell me you couldn't get enough of this book. Is you, just kept, you just couldn't get enough. And you couldn't wait to get to church to hear preaching and to hear and, and to be under instruction. That's the process by which God writes his law upon his heart. Um, there is no zap into this. Is it God, the foundation of the Christian life is the word of God written upon our hearts, but it is our responsibility to put that word in our hearts. He gives us the understanding, and the word of God at times becomes in our hearts, just like Jeremiah. Remember what Jeremiah said? He says, I'm done speaking of you. My ministry is, a, I, I, I'm not in, influencing every, anybody. I, I get thrown into a cistern. Is it, nobody listens to me. I, I, I can't talk about you anymore. And what Jeremiah said, but your word was like a fire in my bones that I could not help but speak. And that's exactly what happens in the new birth is the foundation of the new birth or the Christian life or the walk, as Paul would say, is rooted in the word of God that God plants in, his heart, in the heart of the believer. Is that you start reading this book and it starts making sense. And you start encountering the God of the book. And lo and behold, you start yearning to obey this book. Joshua 1.8 says this, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. This is God speaking to Joshua. He says, the book, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. That's, that's the law being written inside of you, the word being written inside of you through meditation. But notice what the Lord tells Joshua. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Knowledge is important in the Christian life. But the Christian life is knowledge and action. It's knowledge and action. And so when it comes to this foundation of the newness of life that we have because of our union in Christ, 
It's founded on the word of God. It's founded on the law written within us. Now look at verse 33 of Jeremiah 31. Here's the second principle of this new life in Christ. I think it's important as Christians, and though some of us have been walking with the Lord for some time, we need to look at these things, and we need to evaluate ourselves in light of these things. Is it so easy just to execute Christian routines and not live the Christian life? Now, you may say, well, what does that mean? Well, just the mindless, the mindless routines. For instance, church on, on the Lord's Day can become a mindless obligation or a mindless routine. And the evidence of that is maybe some of you, you're here and you're looking at me, but your mind is on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You might, you might be here, but your mind is already gone. And it's not even 12.30 when we're done. I, I mean 12 o'clock when we're done. <laughs> is you might, not, you might be here physically, and you may be looking at me because you think that's what you're supposed to do. And I'm looking at you, but I don't know whether your heart has already taken flight and gone somewhere else. And so it's important that we understand that God will write the word upon our hearts, but it's our responsibility to put us under the means by which he does that. And how does he do that? By private times in the word and by public hearing of the word of God and, and drawing our attention to this. Now look at verse 30. Uh, this is the second principle, and that is the relationship. The relationship in the newness of life that we are to walk this destroys religiosity. This just destroys the routine of Christianity. Because Christianity, in its purest sense, is relational. It's relational first vertical, and then horizontal. And notice what uh, Jeremiah says, a part of the New Covenant, in verse 33, and the second part of it. God says this, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Don't gloss over the staggering declaration of God here. God is willing to take us nasty, messed up people and say, you'll be mine. I'll own you. Do you deserve it? No. Can you earn it? No. Are you good enough for me just to give it to you? No. And that's why it's called grace. And that's why it's called grace. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, I mentioned earlier the radical nature of Christianity, what we tell the world. Here's another aspect of that. We tell the world. Not only did I say get with an unbeliever, get with someone, just walk down the street in East Greenwich and stop by where someone drinking a cup of coffee and ask if you can sit down and just sit there and just strike up a conversation and, and, and bring up the, the person of Jesus Christ and they're going to like, I'm all set. That's what most people will say. But get this. You know what else we tell the world? That this person who is the, is the pivot of all, of all human experience and human uh, in human history, birth, resurrection, second coming, we tell the world we know this person. And look what God says in Jeremiah, the 31 passage. For they shall all know me. Friends, 
Jesus prays in John 17 this most profound truth that is to mark the Christian. Jesus says to his Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. Now, if you were to ask most people what eternal life is, I would say that they're going to answer with, well, it means you're going to live forever. Well, one, we don't, have a, we don't have a concept of that. That's not what eternal life is. That's immortality. We are immortal beings. Every single person under the sound of my voice and every human being that's ever lived, you are going to exist in eternity forever. You are going to have a consciousness either in a place of great torment or a place of great bliss. That's what the Bible teaches. So eternal life is not, is not living forever. Eternal life is the quality of your relationship with the living God. And Jesus, so that we wouldn't misunderstand that, he would say this in John 17. I just read the first part. He says, and I, I've been given the authority to give eternal life. And then he says, so you won't misunderstand what that means. And this is eternal life that they know you. The one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you're a Christian today, you have the greatest privilege that a human being will ever know. And that is to know God. And to know his son. And so this newness of life, it's rooted in the new birth given by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. It's marked by the foundation of the Word of God as the compass driving your life. And the purpose of that is that the relationship that you have in this newness of life would blossom and grow to where our fellowship is really with God. The vertical and hence, we gather on the Lord's Day and we gather during times during the week to get together as the family of God. And if, if, if the Christians that are here today, um, we strive to be with each other because we're going to spend eternity with each other. We might as well start now. Two Christians were talking one day. And one said, it's a grand thing to be saved. The other replied, oh, yes, it is. But I think something is equally as good as that. The first one was puzzled and said, what do you think could be possibly greater or equal than salvation? The other believer smiled and spoke these words, the companionship with the one who saved me. Christian, you don't walk alone. And some of you are going through dark, dark times. Some of you are going through deep trials. Some of you are grieving loss of loved ones. Some of you are suffering from depression. Some of you are suffering from just failed expectations, failed relationships, disappointments. That's life under the sun. And so every one of us that have come into this room today, all of us have something. And yet as a Christian, you never walk alone. You have a relationship and you say, well... I just feel like God is so distant. You may be crying out Psalm 13 in your prayers. How long? How long will you forget me? How long? And you're going to get through this dark valley, and you will. If you're a child of God, you'll get through it. And you'll get through this dark valley when you could not sense God, like Isaiah 50.10 says, a child of God walking in darkness. And you get through this valley and you're going to look back and you're going to realize 
that he was ever so close to you in those times. Is that this relationship of the new life. I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall know me. You're going to look back and say, he was ever so close to me in the midst of the darkness. And John would say in 1 John that indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so Christian, as we walk this newness of life that Paul would describe us because of our union in Christ, the first aspect of it is the foundation of the Word of God. If you're here and you profess to be a Christian, and I'm not trying to create doubt in anyone's life, but one of the hallmarks of being a Christian is you really do want more of this God revealed in the book. You want to know Him. And you, and you cher- cherish your Bible. And you read your Bible not to just get educated, you read your Bible to encounter. Is you come to your Bible because you want to know this Jesus who gave his life for you. You want to know this God who has promised to say, yes, you're messed up. Yes, yes, you have all kinds of issues. And I know that, but I'm your God, and you are my people. So the second mark of this newness of life is the relationship. The relationship, that with the living God. We're going to talk more about that tonight. I think one of the things that, um, we're going to look at the mind tonight, thinking. Our thoughts towards God, and God's thoughts towards us, because how we think, As the King James would say in the Proverbs verse, how we think is how we live. So how we think has a huge impact on on our life. Okay, now, let's uh, let's look at Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. Here's a third thing about this newness of life. It's founded in the Word of God. We want more of the Bible because we have new life. New life is Christ in us. Christ in us creates a hunger for the Bible because we want to know the Christ who gave us new life. From that is we foster the relationship with him. We long to to live up to what God calls us to, and that's to be his people. So this relationship is we walk through life as hard as it is, knowing that we're not alone, and that God is indeed our God, and we are his people. But there's a third thing now. Here's a third truth in this newness of life. And, And I'll pose it with a question. What sustains us? What keeps us keeping on as Christians? And every Christian at one time or another, a Christian that's growing, that is, is that you feel the the weariness of the Christian life. You feel the weightedness of your sin. You feel the the weightedness of just life. You feel the, the difficulties of obedience. You just feel like at times you want to cry out, Coach, take me out. You want to feel at times like throwing the towel in. And, and, and don't say, no, I've never felt like that. Yes, you have. But you don't. And you won't. And it's not because, like Spurgeon said, if you're hold on God, it's because of his hold on you. And Jesus says that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will no wise cast out. He says, they're in my hand, and they're in my Father's hand, and no one can snatch them out. You're safe. You're safe. But what sustains us? It's it's not your personal resolve. That's not going to get it done. That's not going to get it done. Now, you may be a very disciplined person. I did 24 years in the Navy. I'm a pretty disciplined person. That doesn't get you very far. Do you know what sustains the Christian life? 
It's the dominant theme in the Bible. And the dominant theme in the Bible is not the love of God. Now, it's included in the love of God. But the dominant theme in the Bible is the fear of God. It's the fear of God. Look at Jeremiah 32, verse 39. I will give them one heart and one way. This is part of the new covenant blessings that the Lord gives those, uh, those believing and in his family. He says, I will give them one heart and one way. And notice the reason why he gives us a new heart. And notice the one way that he gives, why he gives the new, gives the new heart. That they may fear me forever. Have you ever thought about that? Is that God gives us a heart and he gives us one way that we might fear me forever. And notice this, that we might fear him forever for their good. For their good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear, now notice this, this is so important. I think one of the things we've lost in the church, and I speak that generally speaking, is where's the fear of God? Where's the fear of God? Notice what he says towards the end of uh, verse 40. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. You know why you won't walk away? It's because God has put his fear in you. As a Christian, he has put his fear in you. Now, it's important that we distinguish, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. It's that we distinguish between the natural fear that is ours outside of Christ and the true fear that Jeremiah is referring to. Now, the fear that is natural in us, in all of us, is the fear that Adam knew in the garden. It's the fear that Adam knew when he disobeyed. In Genesis 3, 9 through 10, we read, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God, God did not say that because Adam was lost. Adam knew, God knew where Adam was. This is for Adam's sake. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And this is one of the most saddest statements in the Bible. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. Now, what happened before they ate the fruit and he heard the sound of God in the garden? That was a wonderful voice. They were in harmony. The creature-creator-dependent relationship was intact. And it was wonderful. But now, in Genesis 10, it says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and it wasn't wonderful. Adam says, I was afraid. I was afraid. There's two types of fears. The first fear is a natural fear because we're sinners, and that is we run from God. We want nothing to do with Him. It causes us to, of terror. It's like Adam, as we try to do the impossible, as we try to hide. We try to hide from God. How insane is that? But that's the insanity of sin. Sin is, sin is just irrational. And so what we have here then is this first fear, that is a fear of being afraid. That's not the fear that the Christian has been given. The Christian has been given the fear that, is, that contains love. 
It contains reverence. It contains awe. It looks at God with, with respect. And it looks at God with confidence. Why do you think Joseph did not sleep with Potiphar's wife? He could have. Probably got away with it, humanly speaking. She was dogging him day after day. He's a young man. She's probably a beautiful woman. Why didn't he do it? He says, how can I commit this great wickedness against my God? It wasn't because he was afraid of God and his consequences. It's because he loved God. He loved God. How can I break the heart of my God by doing the very thing that he forbids me to do? That's proper fear. That's the fear that causes us to turn from sin and turn to God. And this is the fear that Jeremiah says God gives us. If we as Christians would walk more in the fear of God, not being afraid of God, but having such a healthy respect of His authority, as healthy respect of His rightful ownership of us, His healthy respect of the sufferings He did for us, and we walked in that fear, we would change the world. We would change the world. Remember the testimony of Job? And the Lord said to Satan, you remember Job, right? Yeah. My wife said to me, I think it was yesterday, you know, some of the suffering, and, and Jean Prey, a lot of us are suffering. You know, it feels like we got a lot of stuff on our plate too. And she said something, she goes, why did you ever preach Job? Job 1.8, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns from evil. God gives a testimony of Job to the devil that he fears him. And that was a healthy fear. And so when you look at, uh, I, want you to, I want you to turn to another portion of scripture. This is very important. Uh, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So if we're going to walk this newness of life, the foundation is the word of God. Write it up on your heart so that you'll do it. Secondly, this newness of life is built in a relationship. It's built on the relationship we have with our God where it's not a switch that we hit on Sundays and turn it off at noon. It's an ongoing relationship of creator and creature that's been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And it's sustained by the fear of God. It's the fear of God that, that is a deterrent to sin and heightens love for him. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, since we have these promises... And the promises are the ones that go back, and we'll look at that too, 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18. That should be connected to chapter 7. Um, since we have these promises, we'll stop right there and go back to verse 16 of chapter 6. It should be on the same page of your Bible. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. And notice here, walk among them. As we walk in newness of life with God, he walks with us. Walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's exactly what he said in the New Covenant in Jeremiah. And now Paul is telling these Corinthians that God has given a promise that he'll dwell among us, that he'll walk among us, he'll be their God, we will be his people. He said, therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, I will welcome you, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. To me, says the Lord Almighty. There's the relationship. So we have the relationship of the, of the newness of life. But now look at verse, seven, verse 1 of verse 7. This is how that relationship is lived. 
since. And the since could, could actually be a therefore. He's just gave us these tremendous promises. I'll be their, their God. They will be my people. I will be a father to them. They will be my kids. Therefore, since all those promises are yours, therefore, or since we have these, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, external, internal, body, heart, bringing holiness, and notice how it's done. In the fear of God. The completion in the fear of God. So don't look at the fear of God as as something that's just laying on a shelf somewhere. The fear of God is the principle that sustains the Christian life. Richard Sibbs, one of the 17th century Puritans, said, Preserve the fear of God by all means. It is one characteristic of a Christian who, when he feels he has lost almost all grace, yet the fear of God is always with him. He fears sin and the consequences of it. God makes that awe, that reverence, the bond of the new covenant, which he does. You see the harmony in all this? This newness of life that Paul would say. There's a foundation to build your life off of, the word of God. It's founded in a relationship with the living God as a result of new birth. It is sustained by the fear of this God who's given you new birth. And now notice the fourth thing. Here's the fourth thing that is to characterize this newness of life. It is the chief quality in the newness of life, and that is God's love. God's love received and given. His love and his fear are not separate. But the chief quality in the new life is God's love received and given. So as we go through this, we're going to have this one and one more, and we're almost done. Is I want you as a Christian, as a professing Christian, don't make the disastrous mistake of just sitting through another sermon and never evaluate yourself by it. And it's not because I'm the preacher. But I want you to ask yourself the hard questions. Are these principles in my life? And are these principles guiding my life? Because we are called to walk in a newness of life. I'm so fearful even in my own life, it's so easy just to mindlessly read our Bibles, mindlessly set to a sermon, and by 12.30, we don't even remember what we heard, and we never evaluate ourselves by what we heard, and thus there's no change. You know what we've just done? All we've done is to write at our judgment day before the Lord Jesus and account for truth that we never lived. That's what happens. And you know what happens to truth that you hear, that you don't apply? It hardens the heart. It hardens the heart. Truth heard, not meditated upon, and not applied, hardens the heart. So that you may hear a sermon on the love of God that used to bring tears to your eyes. Now it doesn't even move you. Now it's just God so loved the world. You're not moved. And you can look back on your life and you can find where that slow slide started to occur. And you get to that point of backslidden to where, for all practical purposes, you're a Christian in name only. Is you just have the outward lookings of a Christian, but the eternal realities of the new life in Christ is absent. Because the foundation hasn't been built upon. The relationship hasn't been fostered. 
The sustaining force in the Christian life, the fear of God, has not been written deeper in your heart. And fourthly, the chief quality in the new life, God's love, has grown noticeably cold in your life. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you note there three times Jesus says love one another? Two verses, three times love one another. The Lord only needs to say something once. But when he says it three times in two verses... We should take heed doubly. And I read those verses, and I know them. I've memorized them. I read those verses. And sadly, there's too many times I just gloss through them. But this week, I looked at those. And I actually asked myself the question, is there evidence in my life that I love God's people? Are there, in my church, are there, are there sheep that are the recipients of my love for them? Jesus would say this, that all people will know you're mine if you have love for one another. Friends, we got to be careful. We live in a culture that, is, that, that celebrates individualism and privatization. And the church has not been not influenced by those. You, can't, you become a Christian individual, but you grow corporately is that you can't live the Christian life in isolation. We must practice these principles together. And Jesus would say the chief quality in my disciples is that they have love for one another. So as I went through the painful examination, and and I tell you, I come up short. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 3 that we are to exhort or encourage one another daily. Daily. Does that describe us? We have it so easy in our culture. You know how easy it is to encourage someone? A text, 30 seconds. I got one early this morning. I got one early this morning. An encouraging, an encouraging text. That individual showed love for me in obedience to this command, and it took maybe 30 seconds. That's just one form. Be very careful that we just don't gloss over these principles because the worst thing would happen is for us to think we're something that we're really not. Is to think that we're something that we're really not. And the only way that you will know if you're something that you really are is you've got to do the self-examination and you've got to be humble enough to say, whoa, this isn't me. And then the glorious gospel comes in and says, but it can be you. It can be you. Now, again, I'm not trying to create doubt. But these things have got to be real because they're part of the new birth. So the chief quality is love. And and what is interesting is it's not just 13, 34, and 35. Jesus would say two other times in the upper room discourse. That we are to love one another. Now remember, these are his last words. And if you knew that you were going to die soon, and your close-knit family members and your friends were around you, what you're going to say, it will be of the greatest importance. You're not going to be talking about the weather. And you're not going to be talking about sports. 
or the political climate, if you knew that you were going to die in a couple days, what you say to your family and to your friends is going to be of what's dearest and precious to you. And what is Jesus emphasizing over, over and over? Love for one another. It's the chief mark in his people that are walking in newness of life. Now, I want to stress this one, t- one more time. Is that you can't generate this. This is not human love. This is Jesus pouring his love in us that flows from us. In Romans chapter 5, Paul told us that we are justified by faith and that God has poured out his love in our hearts. So the prayer becomes, God, give, not give me love, but the prayer becomes, God, give, give me the discernment and, 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 the, and the guidance to apply the love that you've already given me. Okay, I must finish. Here's the last one. Here's the last one. So this newness of life, it's, it's very practical. The foundation is the word of God. It's rooted in a vertical and a horizontal relationship. It's sustained by the fear of God. Its chief quality is love. Love for one another and love for God. And remember this, love in the Bible is an action. You can't tell me you love me and then not show it. And I can't tell you I love you and not show it. And here's the final one. Here's the final one in this mark, uh, this mark of new life in, in Christ. And it's, it's simply the model. Who's the model for the new life? It's the Lord Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus. 1 John 2, 6 would tell us, whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We have one model. Yes, provide an example for each other, and we do that here. A lot of you are examples for me that I cherish. But friends, don't look at a flawed model. At the end of the day, don't look at a flawed model. Look at the model. Walk as he walked. And in order to know that, you got to study how he walked. you got to study how Jesus walked. And that's why, as I've told you numerous times, you have to saturate, saturate yourself with the gospel, gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You need to read the gospels over and over and over for the purpose of seeing how Jesus walked. And as you do that, let's pray that God writes the foundation of the new life in us and that this new life fosters a deeper relationship with the Lord, that it's, found, that it's grounded in the fear of God, that it produces within us a love for one another that overflows. And it all points back to him who loved us the most. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your good word. And may you help us to examine ourselves in light of these. As Paul would command us to walk in newness of life. May these very principles of your word that show us what happens at new birth become very real in all of our lives for the sake of him who loved us and modeled for us. It's in his name we ask it. Amen.